0: Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible author and human resources leader, Kim Hamer. Hello, Kim, and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Zach. I love that introduction, the incredible. That's a great introduction. (laughs) Well, you're
0: (laughs) incredible. I hope you know that. (laughs) And today we're going to be talking about 100 acts of love, potentially incredible acts of love, we'll find out. And for our listeners who don't know, we're going to go personal here because in 2009, Kim Hamer watched her 44-year-old husband take his last breath. And during his illness and after his death, she was amazed by the helpful ways that her coworkers, bosses, friends, and family supported them both. Kim started calling their kind actions acts of love. Afterwards, Kim launched her business to support leaders and coworkers when cancer or any health crisis affects a team member. Kim is the author of "A Hundred Acts of Love," a girlfriend's guide to loving your friend through cancer or loss, which is an easy-to-read book filled with 100 practical, quick, and effective ways to support a friend or coworker. How are you today, Kim?
1: I'm good, Zach. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on as your guest.
0: Thanks. So it's hard to know where to begin. And I say that because, you know, we're going to be talking about how your husband passed away and the actions that you received. And at the same time, it was a long time ago, right? And I'm tempted to say something like, sorry for your loss, which is yes. one of those cliche phrases that people say. But you spend a lot of time talking about and writing about what to say and also what not to say. (laughs) So I'll I'll open that to you. You know, when you tell someone that your husband passed away over 10 years ago, what kind of a response do you think is most helpful?
1: Well, this is a great question. Um, And I think it really kind of depends on your relationship. I'm an advocate for Mm. using the actual word death. Right. Because we tend to use a lot of euphemisms when we talk mm-hmm. about dying and we don't use the real word. And I think it's because we're afraid of that word. Like we're, you know, two things that are always going to happen, right? Death and taxes. That's the joke. And so I think the right thing to say is I, I think it's always good to say, mm. I'm sorry. You know, I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, I'm so sorry. You could use my husband's name. I'm so sorry. Art died. You know, I'm so sorry this happened in your life. And oftentimes you'll get two reactions it is people, one, one people will say, thank you so much. Or the other, sometimes people will say, but it wasn't your fault. Right. And I have, I have such a, it's, it's a, such an odd thing to say because you're not saying sorry because you had something to do with it. You're just saying sorry because you're acknowledging it. It's okay to be, you know, I'm I'm fairly young, and so when I tell people that my husband died, people kind of it's a moment of shock, and they go, "Oh, oh, uh, oh, uh, oh, uh, oh," uh, mm. and being speechless is an okay thing to do, right? Saying to someone, especially if it's new or just happened, I'm I don't even know what to say, but I think the most important thing is to make sure that you say something. Now I'm going to give one. Big tip, and we can end the podcast after this, and that, (laughs) hopefully we won't, but here's the tip. Mm -hmm. The one thing I tell people never ever to say is, if you need anything, let me know. And I know that that sounds like you're being really helpful because you want to get in there, you're going to do something for them in their time of need. But there are three specific reasons that's the least helpful thing to say. The first one is anything. What is anything to you? You know, when my first, my husband actually had cancer twice, And when he was first diagnosed, I had a toddler who was four years old. So were you like going to go pick up my snot nosed coughing toddler at preschool? Is that what you meant by anything? Or did you mean that you'd be happy to pick up a gallon of milk, right? Uh, For my friend whose mother was dying, did you mean you were willing to sit and read to her dying mother? Are you comfortable with that? Or did you mean you just love to send her a little happy text to make sure she feels loved? And so anything is too big for mm-hmm. anybody to wrap their head around. The second reason it's not helpful is you are asking the person who's in crisis, who's kind of out of their mind, who is not does not have 52 cards in mm-hmm. the deck right now, although they may look like that, you're asking them to break apart their day and to find the one specific thing that you might be willing to do. And I don't know about you, but if you started to think about your day, it's kind of hard to say, well, actually I ran out of toilet paper this morning, or I really need, I can't find any pens to write with, or I could really use some spaghetti, or I could use gas in my car. It's hard Hmm. for us to take apart our day. And then the third reason it's not helpful is even if the person you care about that you've said this to, that you really want to help, even if they figure out one thing that you might want to do, they're probably not going to ask you because they're already feeling so, so vulnerable. And they're guessing that this one thing that they need to get done that you might be willing to do maybe, and they're too scared to get a rejection. So they're not going to ask. So oftentimes, you know, I know it feels like the best phrase ever, but y'all, we didn't go to school for this. Like there's no class in elementary school or high school or college or, you know, even a class in in our businesses that says, this is how you support people. (laughs) So none of us knows. So we're kind of walking around in the dark and that phrase feels like it's really helpful, but it's not. The best thing you can do is to be as specific as possible. Mm. Um, You know, in my book, I dedicate the book to a gentleman named Kinney. I live in Los Angeles. I go to, I used to go to a farmer's market in Venice and Kinney was the guy who sold all the root vegetables, potatoes and parsnips and things like that. And when I shared with Kinney that my husband had cancer, he said, if you need anything big moved, let me know, or heavy moved. And I thought that was the weirdest offer, honestly, because I was like, what, you know, I, I don't think I have anything. But the thing is, that stuck in my mind and I remembered. And he offered several times. Well, fast forward, my husband gets cancer again. He dies. We have a grand piano. I decide I'm rearranging the living room. Hmm. Who do you think I called? Mm-hmm. Right, I remembered specifically what his offer was. So I always tell people be specific and offer more than once because, again, the person you're dealing with is in crisis. And they may not remember the first time. They may not remember the second time. Don't hound them. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's okay to offer more than once.
0: So much to... Unpack here because I'll just summarize one of the things you said. The worst thing you can do (laughs) is say, if you need anything, let me know. (laughs) The best thing you can do is be as specific as possible.
1: Absolutely.
0: And I want to go back to something that you said towards the beginning around how often people are shocked, oftentimes people are speechless, oftentimes people don't know what to say. And I'm wondering, almost what your perspective is on our cultural approach to death in general because I do kind of find that we do kind of live in a what sometimes is called a death phobic or a grief phobic society versus for example in Tibet where the ground is frozen so you can't bury the bodies they take the bodies on top of a mountain they meditate with it they watch the body like decompose and get taken away by by birds and like are more tapped into this process of life and death of birth and decay and everything's like that while i feel like in our times we shoo it away we hide it and we aren't exposed you know to it as much and you even mentioned your advocation for the word death and it's true we have words like passed away kick the bucket all sorts of other things which to me
1: Mm -hmm. no longer here yeah
0: our design almost like deny the reality
1: yeah I think we do and I think that's a problem um I think it stems from our deeper feel of, uh, look, we're Americans and we love to get stuff done. Like we're this we can country, you know, we can do everything. We can't fix death. We can't fix Mm. someone's illness. We can't fix, you know, a child dying. We can't fix all those things. And because we're this we can society, it leaves us feeling vulnerable and afraid. And when we feel vulnerable and afraid, we feel fearful, and then we, we want to take a step back. We want to sort of remove ourselves from the one thing that actually can connect us deeply to each other and, and to, to living a, you know, a more joyous life. I, I'm going to talk about my kids for a second, but I gave okay. birth, I home birthed two of my children. And I did it specifically because I didn't want to be in the hospital. I didn't want to have this sort of neutral, like this kind of clean environment. And I didn't want people interfering with the birth process. Now, had I had to do it over again, I might've had my second, my third in the hospital because he was a very big baby, but he came out fine. Like he came out fine. It wasn't a pleasant experience. But I think that in general, we tend to numb ourselves from these difficult experiences because we're afraid that we'll never feel happy Mm. again, like that we'll, that this this experience of death will stay with us forever. And, you know, my husband died 13 years ago and I am proof Mm. that that's not true. You know, his death still resonates with me and I still think about him every day, but it's not in this longing sort of, oh, I wish he hadn't died way. You know, I've morphed from that place, which was early on into a place of, I love that sunset. Thank you, Art, for Mm. reminding me to Mm -hmm. look, take a look at sunsets, right? I think people just are afraid. And I think that's why we often say things that are sometimes even cruel when we, when we intend to be loving and kind.
0: Mm -hmm. You mentioned the big tip. So you mentioned ending the podcast, but I want to know more because you mentioned the big tip was never say, if you need anything, let me know. But you also have a free download on your uh, website around five phrases you should never say to anyone with cancer. So what are some more things we should not be saying?
1: (laughs) So there's so many, many, many things. Um, I think another common one people say is, well, at least, Mm. right? So um, you find out that your coworker has cancer and you're like, well, at least, and maybe it's stage two. And you're like, well, at least it's not stage four. (laughs) <laughs> right. Or at least you still get to work. Or at least, you know, you're um at least you've had your children so you don't have to worry about having any more kids. Or, mm-hmm. you know, so we we like to we're trying to make them feel better, but instead of making them feel better, we are distancing ourselves from their experience, right? We're not honoring, y'all getting cancer. I, you know, I, I'm knocking on wood right now that I don't have and I haven't had that experience. But that's a life changing event. It's terrifying, right? So, getting cancer is is something that 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 can that if you don't do anything. With this thing that's trying to kill you, you will eventually die before the time that you expect mm. to die. Right? That's what cancer is. And what people, what, what people want is just to be mm. seen. Like this is this is a hard journey. So when someone has cancer, they want you to look at them and say, I see you, I hear mm. you, I'm sorry this sucks. And when you say, at least, you are just kind of skimming over this the the difficulty of what they are going I have to will have Mm. to go through or going through or went through. Right. If they say at least that's their business because they may need that distance, but it's not our place to distance there to distance it Mm -hmm. for them or to try to cheer them up about it. The tip I always give everyone is just take a check. Just take a quick check in with yourself, right? Because um, we often have bad reactions and I'm not saying you should not have a bad reaction. You're going to have a bad reaction. Someone you care about tells you something that's horrible. You know, you're going to have a bad reaction sometimes, but to take that step back and to just kind of say, why did I have that reaction? And it's because it hurts, It's because someone you Mm -hmm. care about is going to be struggling. It's because it's painful to watch. It's because maybe it's triggering something in your own past where you struggled or your mom or your sibling Mm -hmm. or someone else you cared about struggled. And when you can touch in with that and just honor that moment and then come back to them um, and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I said this. This is where I was coming from. I'm scared for you. I love you. I care about you. I love working with you. You make me laugh. You bring me so much joy. You know, you're the best Excel spreadsheet person I know, you know, and, Mm. and this news really rocked my world, right? That, that's, so you want to come from that place of heart, Because there are so many wrong things to say, and there are so many right things to say, but the right things don't necessarily have a list. The right things really come from the right thing for you, the right Mm. way for you to acknowledge them. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. What I'm hearing from you, and it reflects back to what we were talking about death earlier, is we do have to have a certain ability to be with discomfort. And often that phrase, at least it's not, is trying to avoid, <laughs> right? Uh, dealing with the reality and just oh, let's just pretend it's it's not. It could be better, right?
1: <laughs> right.
0: It almost reminds me of there's this famous kind of like dialogue from Brene Brown where she was talking about the difference between sympathy and empathy and yes. sy- like you're in a hole and sympathy is someone looking down and, and empathy is getting into the hole. And I love your mantra. Yes. You mentioned, I see you, I hear you, I'm sorry. And it sucks. Yeah. And do you find this to be helpful?
1: I agree 100%. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to get in the hole. Nobody really wants to get in the hole, right? <laughs> your life is going on quite well. You're like, I don't really want to get in that hole with you. But that's where, you know, we always talk about wanting this connection and wanting to feel more human and connected with people. And that requires us to get into the hole, hmm. right? To just sit in there for a second. One of the sweetest things somebody did for me is um, a month after my husband died, my the, the school that two of my children were at, they did these camping trips. And depending on your grade... You would get to stay over. You only stayed over for a, you only there for a day, or you stayed overnight, or you stayed over for two nights. I think the old the older class stayed over for three nights. At any rate, um, it, I got word that my, my, my youngest son and my daughter, who were supposed to at least stay over for one night, didn't want to stay. So I had to co- go to the school and meet the bus and pick them up. Mm. And while we were sitting there, I just felt this incredible loss. This is probably three weeks after my husband died. And I just feel this incredible loss coming over me. And I start to sob. And mm-hmm. one of the moms comes and sits next to me. And she doesn't say anything. And then she moves over just a little closer to me and she doesn't say anything. And then as I as it seems like I'm calming down, you know, from the crying, she says, is it okay if I hold your hand or hug you? And I said, yes. And of course, that started a whole new round of sobbing. But the beauty of that was she witnessed it. She didn't run away from it. She didn't try to pat me on the back. She didn't run and get me a tissue to make me feel better. She just sat there with me. And honestly, having her presence there was so beautiful. It was just being. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to do. But what a gift. I mean, you know, 13 years later, I still tell the story of what Mm -hmm. she did. Her name is Marta Todd. (laughs) I know she's out there. She's in in Florida now. Um, Wonderful. So, you know, being... Being present is not easy. It takes courage, hmm. um, but it also takes the understanding that you can come in, you can touch, you can be with, and then you can pull out and you can have a laugh three minutes later and there's no guilt. Sometimes we feel guilt, like we're our friend is sick and really suffering and who am I to go to dinner and have a really good time? Well, that's you, you, that's exactly what you need to do. You get to live, right? you're talking with your friend and understanding how precious life is means you should go out and enjoy it just a little bit more. Mm. Um, so I think sometimes we think we should take the guilt with us and we should, we should feel bad because this person's going through this thing and, and we can't do anything about it. No, I don't agree with that at all. You know, If you're with them and you can be with them, that's the gift. And then mm. you get to go and live your life and bring that gift back into them again.
0: Absolutely. I love that message so much. Just this basic idea that our attention, our presence, and offering that to somebody is one of the most precious gifts we have to offer.
1: And it feels like you're doing nothing. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the thing. It feels because, you know, again, we go back to the US, we're going to get in there, we're going to fix it, we're going to do we're going to change it. Mm. And the reality is, you know, the smallest little gifts that we got were the most powerful, you know, the Marta story, someone sent me $10. You know, <laughs> I had kept a blog while he was while he was sick the first two times, uh, the both times. And the first time, she sent me this little tent. She didn't leave a return address. She just said, "I don't have a lot of money, and I just feel for your journey. And this is the only thing I could think to do that would be helpful." It was ten dollars. You know, Mm. and back then, back then I probably would have bought me two Starbucks coffees. Um, (laughs) But it was, (laughs) it was so moving. You know, it was this little thing. And it's just a little reminder that you person, stranger who's ever listening to this podcast, you have the power to make someone feel like they matter. And that's really the core of everything that I want to teach. You know, I'm not here because I'm super strong and courageous and I got through my husband's death and I raised three kids and yada, yada, yada. I'm here because of all the beautiful little things that people did for us that said, mm-hmm. hey, I love you. Hey, I'm with you. Hey, I hear you. Hey, you got this. Hey, I'll take your kids. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's all those little things that make a huge difference. And you doing that one thing may not feel powerful, but if they're lucky enough to be in a community that, that continues to act, you're one of a hundred. And that's, you know, that's an amazing, you know, your one thing is a gift to them. So that's what I really want to encourage people to do. Even if you don't know what to do, you know, I always say, give them choices. I'm going to bring you dinner on Thursday night. Do you want chicken or lasagna? You know, don't ask them what they want. Do you want chicken or lasagna? Or if they're vegan, do you want... Turfokee? Was it turfo, tur, tur, tur Tofurky, the, tofurky, tofurky, <laughs> or, or do you want like eggplant lasagna, right? Or mm-hmm. you know, with, with vegan cheese, you know, just be as specific as you possibly can. Give them a little bit of choice, but show up. That's the thing mm. that I really want you. People think they're too small, and because they don't know what to do, that they shouldn't show up. But that is the exactly right time to show up.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love how you basically said that being is better than fixing, doing, changing, and also the encouraging statement that you have the power to make someone feel like they matter.
1: Yeah. I often say, and I have to remind myself of this too, I'm a human being, not a human doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And (laughs) for a large part of my day, I think I'm a human doing and I getting stuff done. But really, first and foremost, I'm a human being. Hmm.
0: So you mentioned there were beautiful things that people did for you. And we can start talking about the acts of love. And a number of episodes ago, I had this researcher, Sonia Leobomirsky on, and she talked actually about how kind and altruistic acts actually make us happier
1: Yes, and they
0: found this through research and they actually did some of the research, you know, in the corporate world, in offices, they were like, do some something for your coworker. And then the person is like, huh, I feel better. Yes. So that's one of the reasons why I was so drawn, drawn to your work. And what were some of those acts that you found particularly helpful?
1: So I will do a personal one, then I'll do a business one. Um, Yeah. So one day, my neighbor Nate called me up and said, "When was the last time the oil was changed in your car?" And as much as I'm a feminist, we had some very traditional roles in my household, and one <laughs> of the traditional art art took care of the cars. Yeah. You know, I can change oil, I can change a tire, I can do that stuff. I can die, I can even change air filters, but that was I prefer. You know, we just made it his rule his role. So I couldn't tell him. I said, "I I don't I don't know," and he said, "I'll tell you what." I'm going to be home all day tomorrow, leave the keys in the mailbox, and I'll take the car and get the oil changed. And I said, great. And so the beauty of this tip, and I'll tell you what happened afterwards, the beauty of this tip is two things. One is sometimes we want to find out how somebody is when they're going through crisis, and we don't give them the space to let them say, I don't feel like talking about this right now. So we come in with the, how are you? Like we come in with that. We really want to know. We really want to care. We care about them, (laughs) but... We, it's it's an intrusive, it's a really extremely intrusive question. One, because you don't know how many times they've heard that today. And the second thing is you're actually asking them to reveal something very intimate about themselves that mm. they may not be ready to share. So the, so the fact that he said, leave the keys in the mailbox meant that I didn't have to face him. I didn't have to put on this pretend face of everything's fine today mm. um, or fine in the moment. Um, so I really appreciated that. And the second thing is if I had even realized that I was out of oil, that my oil needed to be changed in the car, it's... Seems like such a stupid thing for me to ask someone to do for me. Like I just, I like it's something I can do. I know how to go to Jiffy Lube, or I can do it myself. And why would I? You know, it's so simple. But when you're in crisis, um, you know, simple things take a lot of energy. Mm. So um, he grabbed the keys, and then the next day after that, I actually went to the car. My kids and I were trotting out to go someplace, and I walk out to the car and I start to cry because it's clean. He has washed it on the outside and he has vacuumed it on the inside. And I had three kids. So y'all know if you have children, vacuuming the inside of a car when you have children is like, it's like the Holy Grail. So he would vacuum it and then I turned the car on and he had filled it with gas and changed the oil. And it was such a moving gift because it was, again, it was something I wouldn't have thought of to do. I wouldn't have thought of to ask. And so it's, and it was so simple. It took him an hour to get it done. And that was it, That, that was it, that was it. Something people did at work so I wasn't working when Art was working, um, but something that they did for him, they had these buttons made and it was, uh, they had these buttons made in their little hearts and it was I Heart Art, which really worked out well. My husband's <laughs> name was Arthur, they all called mm-hmm. him Art. So I Heart Art and they um, held a fundraiser for him. They have a, at, the, at the school every year during the fall, they have these um, big sales. And so they held a fundraiser for him teachers and parents. He was, he was a head of an upper school um, in here in Los Angeles. Teachers and parents came and gave him rides to the cancer treatment center, something that, you know, it was we were a 40 minute drive from that. So for me, sometimes that meant, you know, three hours of driving in a day. I'm mm-hmm. um, going back and going there and dropping him off, and coming back and going back to pick him up again. And so they did that. Um, one of, one of his coworkers kept him abreast of everything that was happening at work. So he was, mm-hmm. so he, you know, would get, sort of like the inside gossip. They'd come and talk to him about it. And those simple things, that's I'm talk about simple things, it's being included, right? I think my husband did leave work because his treatment was so intense that he couldn't work during it, but 64% of those who are diagnosed with cancer um, who are of working age are working. So there's always this assumption that people are going to be out of the office, but the reality is, is most people work through their treatment if they can. And there's a variety Mm. of reasons for it. Um, Some of it's about, you know, making sure they still have an income coming in. Some of it's about fear of losing their, you know, healthcare insurance, even if they Mm. have FMLA. Some of it is, a lot of it is, you know, I don't know if any of us can think about this, but think about our jobs and think about what happens when we're not working. Like what's our purpose? Like our, our jobs are tied to f- making us feel like we're contributing in some way or, or another. And so the idea of leaving work, especially when you're fighting this thing that might kill you, um, doesn't feel very good. So I think, you know, there's things I've heard of. I heard a story. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, working with a client, where they took over, this person ran meetings all the time. And so their team members each took a meeting that they would run. And they would run the agenda by the person who's who's dealing with, this lo- dealing with cancer. But then they would send that agenda out for everybody. And it's not a big deal, right? I mean, all they're doing is saying, hey, is this the agenda for the meeting? And yep, it's the agenda. And then that person was still in those meetings. But they're taking a load off of this person. And that person talked about how much, how cared for they feel. Like Mm. they don't have to do the agenda anymore. People are including her in the process. um, But she doesn't have to do it. And that's a load off for her. And everyone's happy to help. So I think that when you think about work, think about all the different things that that person does. And oh my gosh, we could have a whole podcast about cancer and work. Um, But think about the 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 daily things that that person does every day, sort of like you would think about the daily things your friend does have to do every day, and how you can help, right? What is it that can you can you run a meeting for them? Can you help them prepare for that meeting? Can you put together a slide deck for them? Can you take on some responsibilities for the next few months? Um, there's so many different ways that you can show up, and it's and you can you bring a can you bring a meal and leave it in the refrigerator for them to take home every Thursday night. Right. Hmm. So there's so many different different ways that you can step in. It's really it's it's kind of fun to go through this with clients because it's a it's a exercising creativity.
0: Yeah, I want to ask you more about that, about how to potentially support a coworker who is undergoing such a treatment because this is your focus and it is interesting that you mentioned a majority of folks continue to work while going through the treatment because my first inclination is like oh a coworker is going undergoing treatment like let's send them home and have them watch the sunset and ride a sailboat exactly. and like all the things they dreamed of doing like what are you doing here in the office and it almost seems almost like a bit of a minefield or just a hard path to travel just because you might also be tempted to be like, oh, I can do this for you. I can do this for you. I can do this for you. And then they're like, but I like doing things. Like, I'm not, yes. <laughs> like, I'm not like, I want to be used to, you know, having a desire, to want to be useful and not just turned into an ineffective, you know, right. person or like, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs>
1: Exactly, um, it's like Monty Python's Holy Grail. <laughs> I don't know if you ever seen that, he's like, I'm not right. dead yet. <laughs> so, yes. so there are. I look at it from um, three different perspectives. So, let's first talk about if you are a manager and your employee has cancer. Oftentimes, again, we're uncomfortable. So, it's really kind of it's remembering, it's writing, it's doing whatever you need to do to to acknowledge those feelings of discomfort. The tricky thing about being a manager who has an employee with cancer is the one most managers thought is, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry," and "Oh my gosh, we're going to miss our goals in in you know in the month, right?" So they have this feeling, uh, and then they feel guilty about that thought. So they have these two thoughts, right? This person they work with is could die. And then their other thought was, holy cow, I'm responsible for making sure that our team meets the KPIs. So how, you know, how do those two work together? And they do go together. And I really want to encourage managers not to feel guilty about that thought. So I always encourage a lot. Look, it takes a lot of dialogue and a lot of honest conversation. But mm. don't do what you just talked about. So many managers do that. They're like, OK, if they're going to work, if, like, first of all, they're going to think they're not going to work and they're surprised when the employee wants to work and then they kind of dive, well, are you sure? Are you, do you really want to? Like they they kind of dive in that way. The second thing that they do is they assume that the employee is not going to be able to work well. And so they do, they start taking off, you know, they could take off the employee's favorite project and the employee's like, but that's my favorite project. Oh, I know, but I want to help you out. I want to take you the pressure off. We, um, you know, having that important, having that dialogue to carefully understand what it is that the employee can and cannot do is really important. Now, I want to say this little caveat. As an HR professional, you cannot ask them about what kind of cancer they have. You cannot ask them about their prognosis. You cannot ask them about the type of treatment they're getting. So if they don't volunteer that information, it's none of your business, and it's those are illegal questions. But you can ask, how. What? how will you be able to contribute to the team? What will you be, you know, do you need to be out three days a week, two days a week, you know, only working nine to 12, five days a week? What does that look like? And then once you understand what what their work plan will be, then you can talk about the projects. And I always, you know, really stress with managers, don't take the favorite one off the table. Mm. Um, Let them, you know, that's where you have the dialogue. How can, this is what needs to get done by the end of the month. What can you contribute to that? So that's an important part of that conversation and you cannot have this conversation once because depending on the kind of treatment if they're going chemo or radiation or immunology or surgery right they if you're having the conversation before any of that starts and then they get chemo and then they have chemo brain which is a real thing where they're just unable to focus then you need you know they may think that they can do it in the beginning and then 3 weeks into chemo they're going to be like whoa I need to back off of this and you're don't leave it for your employee to come to you to ask those questions cuz they want to they don't want to get fired they want to do the work, right? This has to do with self. So be the person who has that conversation with them and checks in with them maybe every month, maybe every two weeks. It all depends mm-hmm. on their their what they say their treatment is. Mm-hmm. From the coworker side of point of view, the other piece is... Again, same thing, not to overdo it. You don't want to run in there and rush in and help. There's something called compassion fatigue. And it's I'm, it, it's used differently, but I like to use it this way in the fact that as an, as, as a coworker, I've got this person who I adore, who's, who has cancer. I want to get in there and help. But on month three, I'm getting a little tired of helping. On month four, I'm getting pissed off. On month five, I'm feeling resentful. Mm. Right. Because I'm taking on all this extra work, plus I'm doing my own, I'm not getting paid anything extra. My manager may or may not be, you know, rewarding me and telling me how all the good about all the good work I'm doing. And so compassion fatigue sets in. And then all of a sudden you feel resentful towards the person who is who has cancer. And that leads to can lead to a lot of shame building internally, right? Can lead to anger and, you know, um, a bad coworker relationship Mm -hmm.
0: relationship.
1: So I always say, you know, if if your manager isn't going to work with you to figure out what the team is going to do to support the employee with cancer, talk to the employee with cancer. Say, I'd like to help. Um, Here's where I think, again, we're going back to being specific. Here's where I think I can be the most helpful for the next month. And then we can reassess. Hmm. We also oftentimes want to run over. We've gotten very personal since COVID, seeing the kids, the cats and the, you know, the small humans or big humans running through our Zoom um, background. So, you know, you can do personal things, but check in. Some employees do not want you showing up on their front door with food. It just feels too uncomfortable right? Mm-hmm. Some employees some will welcome it. Some employees will welcome you in and you can sit and talk for a little while. So just make sure, again, be specific on what you're willing to do and offer more than once. And if they keep turning you down, then change what you need to do. And then the third thing, which I, I'd said there were two, but there's three, and that is the manager to the team. So the manager, I always encourage managers to have those honest conversations with the team. Now, the manager should have had the conversation with the employee of, how much do you want the team to know? You know, what what do you want them, what do you not want them to say to you? So these are the things that I help, the conversations that I help facilitate so that everyone's very clear. Um, so the manager needs to know from the employee dealing with cancer or this life crisis, you know, what do you want me to tell the team? Do, what do you not want being said to you? What do you okay with? What are you not okay with? You know, so everyone's on the same page. And then the manager has the conversation with the team and says, here's what's going on here are things that they don't want to talk to you about. So please don't talk to them about here are the projects that we're going to be still working on. We are going to have to have a division of labor because this person's not going to be able to do as much. We'll have a meeting about that later, but here's the, you know, here's the general guidelines of how we're going to behave during this time, how we're going to set our culture. What's, what's our team culture during this time because team cultures can shift and change when someone, when an employee has cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are the three things that I really, I strongly recommend. And they're hard. Again, they take courageous, they're courageous conversations. You have to be able to talk to the employee um, and also weather the employee's emotions. The employee may come in very defensive. I can do my job. I'm fine. I got this. You know, rah, I'm, I'm fine. And then you may see that their performance is not fine. And you might have to bring them back in and say, this is what I'm seeing. We need to make some adjustments, right? Some employees will come in and be willing to tell you, I've got BRCA 2, stage 5, and this is all the things I need, right? You have that, that employee, right? And then you have the employee who does not want anyone to change anything. You know, I will go, I will get my treatments all after work. I will show up every day. I'm not going to mention this to anybody. I don't want anyone. The only thing I need anyone to know is that I am, I'm I'm having some health issues right now. That's the only thing I want to know. Mm. But whatever it is, there are conversations that need to be had, driven mostly by the manager.
0: Mm. You know, I'm curious how you skirt that line between... Doing many of the things you recommended, like, you know, dialoguing with them, checking in about workload, sharing it amongst the team with not having it seem like special treatment or like being unfair. Some workers will be like, how come this person gets a 15 minute smoke break? You have a coworker who smokes, for example, and it's like they can go. They're allowed to go smoke for 15 minutes. Where's my free 15 minute break? Do I need to take up smoking just to get it? And then it's like, you know, oh, this person gets like less of a workload and less of a thing. And obviously you want to, you know, you want to be compassionate, but you did mention that resentment is some something that comes up. So what is, what is the best way to kind of skirt that line?
1: I think that that's great. I often recommend that companies have standard gifts that they give to everybody when they're dealing with uh, some type of loss. So, you know, Uber gift card is a great, and uh, a share a share ride gift card is a great one um, to get someone back and forth to treatment. And it's just sort of a blanket. You know, we give everyone who's dealing with this crisis a hundred dollar share ride card every month that they're dealing with it. There is no easy answer to that, and I think it depends on the team and the manager and the culture. If there is a culture of competition. Of very low collaboration, then that is something that's going to come up. And it's up to the manager and HR to kind of say, this is the way we're doing it right now for this person. And, and to set and to sort of set a set of a, um, guidelines that this is, you know, each manager gets to decide how they're going to support their employee with cancer. Um, I often find that behind that question, is someone who doesn't feel like they're being recognized for their work, mm-hmm. doesn't feel like they're a valued member of the team, doesn't feel like they're contributing to the best of their ability. And so it's the, the question is not really the issue. It's really a, a bigger management and team member issue that's just being brought to the surface by the fact that someone is dealing with, with, with cancer on the team. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a I you know, I would love to have a pat answer, like this is what you do, um, but it's, there's so many variables in that situation that it's really impossible for me to, to say that. But I do know that it's, the cancer is not the cause of, of, the, of that issue. It's, it's a deeper issue.
0: What's coming up for me is just going back to that empathy piece in terms of you can't just have a blanket solution to somebody's problems. You actually have to listen to them (laughs) (laughs) and decide to them and figure out what they need in order to offer them the best kind of support for them. And as we're winding down, I wouldn't mind getting back to this idea of acts of love, 100 acts of love, and also think about how we can do these regardless of whether or not somebody is going through a crisis.
1: You know, I try to
0: wake up every day and live from love. And sometimes I'm like, how can I best do that? Right. So what are some actions that you think that anybody can take for anybody and like the best way to bring some initiative to that?
1: Yeah, I love that question. There's a phrase that we hear all the time, random acts of kindness, which I actually hate because I think they should not be random. (laughs) I think you should be committing them all the time.
0: Planned on the schedule.
1: (laughs) So, you know, there are, so on my Instagram, I do, (laughs) I think I do it for myself because, but I get so much joy out of it that I know it brings other people joy. Every Monday on Instagram and Facebook, and every Friday on LinkedIn, I tell a joke. And it's usually a pretty bad dad joke that I think is really, really funny. And, you know, I know that when I tell it, and people listen in on it. They just they just get joy from it. They just they just kind of enjoy it. Some people don't enjoy it, so they don't watch it. You know, they're kind of like, oh, there she is with her you know thing. I'm gonna skip over that. Mm-hmm. Um. So I think it's just remembering that, uh, you know, there's you can you can be in a grocery line and cut forward and be like, hey, I'm gonna pay. Here's twenty bucks towards your groceries. I'd go to Costco and sometimes people pull into Costco and they don't have a Costco card. Here, use mine. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just remembering, um, you know, there's, uh, the book five love languages, um, that I love because it really kind of, puts it together. Some people love acts of service. Some people love kindness. Some people love gifts. Some people love time. And I always forget what the fifth one is. There's another one in there. But it's understanding what the person's acts of of love is and then taking that energy and giving it to them. So as we return to the office, as some people return to the office, maybe it's just you're that busy person who's always on the go and always working. Maybe it's spending 10 minutes having a conversation with someone about their child and all the things that they did or their graduation, or you know, it's it's remembering. It's maybe it's um, someone you know really loves coffee, and maybe it's just picking up an extra coffee in the morning and bringing it to them, or sending them a a gift card to your favorite coffee place. And maybe it's it's you know, my daughter did <laughs> my you know we did an act of love the other day. I did not want to go shopping. I wasn't into going clothes shopping. My daughter really wanted me to go. And I went and it was the sweetest thing. Like I took, I was going to get some blog post done or something crazy. Like I had stuff to do. And instead of doing that, I just spent time with her and it was just so lovely and peaceful and wonderful. Mm. So I think we, we underestimate, you know, it's, it's getting on a zoom call and saying, Hey, join the zoom call 10 minutes early. And having someone in your office join the call 10 minutes early so you two can catch up and chat, right? It's the acts of love are very, very simple and they make people feel counted, Mm. um, the, I think the hardest thing about an act of love is, you know, if you're doing it to get the kudos, I suggest you like go work with puppies or kittens or something, right? Because <laughs> they, they will love you. But you know it's an act of love when you walk away going, ha, huh, that was so great. Like you walk away just feeling a little happier, a little brighter, a little just better for doing something. So I think they can be random. They can be with people you love. I've been fantasizing. You know, I know that gas prices are out of control. I live in LA. Everyone drives a car. Mm. And I think about, you know, the poor person who's earning $15 an hour and has to pay $6 per gallon right now. And I think about, you know, I'm going to go down to an area that is that is not as fortunate as the one I live in. And I'm just going to like stand at the gas pumps and give people 20 bucks. Like, you know, it's, it's not a lot of gas, but it's like three tanks and just, you know, maybe I'll pay 50 bucks for the five people that come through or give them 50 bucks cash or something. It is just understanding that everybody needs help. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs to be counted and to be seen. And we all want someone to say, you know, I see you, I hear you, I love you. You know, what can, you know, not mm-hmm. what can I do, but let me do this for you. Um, and so I think that, you know, I'm going on, but yeah, I mean, an act of love mm-hmm. is anything that you want to do. You know, I think sometimes also it's contrary. That's the other thing I want to mention is that it can feel contrary. It can make you feel sort of like, ooh, someone's going to think I'm really silly or someone's going to look at me really funny if I do this. So it can make you feel a little uncomfortable, but there's nothing wrong with discomfort. There's nothing wrong Mm. with it, especially if you're doing something that's not normal for you a little bit outside your comfort zone. So that's what I will end it with.
0: Well, one thing that's kind of coming up for me listening to you is that I do feel like giving love creates an attitude or intention of reciprocation. Like, oh, this feels good and I really appreciate you supporting me during this time. And we use the term crisis to mean like is a temporary is a temporary point in my life where things are really really hard. And that's why I think this love in general is so important is we do need each other to get through the challenging times in our life. So I am curious, going a little bit back to your own story, is did you find like in the years that have come since, you've either given back, I should say pay it forward, (laughs) or that the same people who helped you when you were having a hard time, you were able to help them when they were in crisis.
1: It's, it's a combination of both. You know, mm. It's really sad when I hear um, my children, you know, elementary school with, with one of the kids. The kids and my kids weren't really friends, but I really liked the mother. We lost touch. and then I heard that her husband died of cancer, And so I called her up, and she's like, "Oh, mm. it's so good to hear your voice, and you know, and I reminded her of what she did for me. You know how we walked the block one time when we were waiting for our kids to get off the to kids to get out of school, and how helpful that was for me. When people say to me, "Do I wish my husband was alive? Do I wish he was back?" That is such a mixed question, especially thirteen years out. First year Mm -hmm. out, for sure, wanted him back, but my life has expanded in so many ways that if he was alive it wouldn't have expanded that way. And so the idea, I feel so grateful that I know how to sit in empathy and in discomfort with someone who's in pain. Um, I feel so grateful from the lessons that my children learned. I will say this. The only, the only place I wish he would come back was to be a father to my children because he was a really great dad. Um, but man, the things they learned from his death and how they show up as these, they're not so little anymore, but as these young adults, when other people in their lives are in crisis, it just blows me away. you know. And they mm. wouldn't have gotten that had their father not died, had their friends not shown up for them. You know, we have eight-year-olds helping, you know, my my son actually just turned seven after uh, three weeks before my husband died. And so his classmates were trying to help him, you right. know, and talking to him and trying to tell them, you know, it's okay to talk about his dad with with him. Like it was just this beautiful thing that was happening. And it just showed me how, just how important it is to be able to pay it forward. Right. Um, so I just feel like, really grateful anytime. I mean, when my friends call me, the people who stepped into my life and really helped, and they call me in crisis, I'm just, I almost fall over myself to help them. Mm. Um, and I feel so grateful that, you know, every time I speak, I hear stories all the time of, you know, I get to hold space for the people who need to tell their story. Mm. Um, and it's, a, and, and I, you know, there are times I hold that space, and I go away, and I get home, and I cry. Because it's really painful to hear and to, to know those people are hurting. It's really painful to hear that. Um, but what a gift it is to be able to do that. And I think that anyone who wants to step into and help someone else deal with a crisis, that's, you know, you're paying it forward or you're paying it back or, you know, you're, do, you're giving them this gift that is honestly priceless. Hmm. Does that answer your question?
0: Absolutely. I think I went off a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really does. And I really appreciate it. And fortunately, I have to wind down. I apologize for going over time. It's just been so fascinating listening to you and your story. And I really appreciate you sharing it. And I do have to finish by asking the same question I ask all of my guests, which is, Yes, what do you wish everyone knew about love?
1: That it's free And it's the best gift you can give to somebody else. Those are the two things. Hmm.
0: Beautiful. It's free and the best gift you can give someone else. Thank you so much, Kim Hamer. Your book is 100 Acts of Love. So where can people find you?
1: At 100actsoflove.com. So that's the number 100. So please mm-hmm. feel free to check check that out. I'm on Instagram at 100 Acts of Love, and I'm on LinkedIn at Kim Hamer. So please stop by. Also, I know, Zach, you mentioned the free download. I do have a free download that talks about five phrases never to say to anyone with cancer, why you shouldn't say them, and what to say instead. And mm-hmm. you can get that at 100ActsOfLove.com backslash what not to say no spaces, <laughs> what not to say, just what not to say, just what not to say. So you can get that there. Uh, you'll be on my email list. You'll know, I'll be notified with, you know, my, when I put blog posts out and other little fun things that I, that I share with my, um, with my audience. So mm. really grateful to everyone who listened all the way through. I'm, I'm just so happy to be able to, um, you know, stand here and just hopefully inspire people to show up because I can tell you, I think I said this earlier, I'm not here because I was super brave and courageous. It was the most difficult time of my life. I never, ever want to go through that again. Um, I am here because all the people who kept saying, I see you, I hear you, I love you. You know, they kept telling me that over and over and over again. And while it didn't take away the pain, it made it easier to get through it. So thank you so much, Zach. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I'm so grateful that that um, that I get to be a guest here. Thank you.
0: Mm. Well, thank you, Kim. And thank you for sharing your story. And you've turned something really tragic into something really transformational mm-hmm. and have, are helping others go through something similar. So thank you so much for coming on. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you remember many of the valuable lessons from today, including that the worst thing you can do is say, if you need anything, let me know. The best thing you can do is be as specific as possible. Know that being is better than fixing, doing, and changing. And you have the power to make someone feel like they matter. Love is free and the best gift you can give someone else. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to ZachBeach.com and learn more about the show at TheHeartCenter.com. Thanks again, Kim. Thank you, Zach. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.